0: me in welcoming Dr. Munoz. Well, thank you, uh, Rich, especially for your biting your tongue uh, at, the, at the appropriate place. Uh, but thanks to you and the Academy and for having me here for this uh, Sackler uh, lecture. Uh, let me just first start with a little bit of a retrospective about uh, uh, DOE, uh, Rich said uh, that I, I served in the second Obama term uh, as, as secretary. And I think a, a lot of uh, people don't uh, fully uh, appreciate uh, what the scope of uh, DOE's activities are, what we like to summarize them as uh, weapons and windmills, quarks and quagmires. Uh, The weapons is because DOE is uh, the repository of uh, nuclear security issues, nuclear weapons, nuclear proliferation, the windmills to symbolize, of course, the clean energy uh, responsibilities of the department, quarks because the uh, department is the largest funder in the physical sciences uh, in terms of basic research and and facilities for our national, uh, national scientific community. And quagmires because we inherited the mess of making those nuclear weapons uh, during uh, during the Cold War, but in in putting those uh, those four general mission areas out, all of which, by the way, I would emphasize, uh, are brought together by their reliance on science and technology. DOE is fundamentally a science uh, science organization, and I see here a lot of. The National Lab people, are all, apparently, have all, have all come here. Uh, DUE runs, uh, uh, operates 17, uh, uh, doesn't operate, actually. We have others operate. Uh, DUE has 17 uh, national laboratories. But in that set of missions, what I would emphasize uh, is that two of them really uh, are directly connected to major uh, global, uh, potentially existential uh, threats Uh, One, on nuclear weapons, uh, hopefully, (laughs) low probability uh, of use, but uh, high and rather immediate consequences uh, if used. Uh, And then climate change, which is quite different in terms of a a slow motion train wreck that we seem by observation to be rather poorly equipped uh, to handle politically, uh, uh, a a classic uh, tragedy of the commons. Uh, A quarter century ago, in the early 90s, there was considerable reason for optimism uh, on both of these threats. Uh, The, uh, on the nuclear weapons, uh, the end of the Cold War, really provided an opportunity and many, in fact I recommend your fellow Californian, Bill Perry's former Secretary of Defense book, uh, in which he notes that he was a Cold Warrior, came back into the Obama administration prepared now to dismantle the nuclear enterprise and has been disappointed uh, uh, that, in fact, that is not the direction uh, that the world has been, has been going. Uh, and then similarly, in the early 90s, we tend to forget the meeting in Rio de Janeiro, uh, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. It was adopted. This was a treaty ratified by the United States Senate uh, with the uh, commitment to stabilize greenhouse gas concentrations at a level preventing dangerous anthropogenic interference in the climate system. Of course, it left open what that meant quantitatively, but I, I, I do think it's worth remembering that we actually have a treaty uh, ratified by the Senate uh, to pursue these, these, uh, uh, these goals. Uh, uh, instead, today, uh, on the first of those threats, It's my judgment at least that the risk of nuclear weapon use, don't get me wrong, not a high probability, but higher than any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, with the risk resting mainly in the dangers of miscalculation uh, with new technologies like cyber threats and with uh, the unstable political relationships uh, that we have uh, seen uh, developing uh, recently. On climate, Uh, We had that wonderful Rio event, but today we remain mired in a morass of science denial, informed uh, that the standards we must meet are a lot tougher than we thought in 1992, uh, and uh, advancing solutions, and that'll be our discussion today, uh, at too slow a pace uh, to meet those uh, tougher standards. President Obama put both of these issues uh, forward as high priorities uh, in, his, uh, in his, his administration. In fact, I would say my job interview in December 2012 uh, covered exactly those two and no other, uh, no other issues. Uh, and uh, in April 2009, just months into his term, he gave a, a well-known speech in Prague uh, that summarized a, a major nuclear security agenda, extremely unusual, Uh, for a United States president or any national leader. That led to the Iran (laughs) events in 2015 that were referred to. Uh, And then in June 2013, the beginning of his second term, he issued his climate action plan, which then, of course, led up eventually to, uh, I would say, success uh, in the Paris Paris meetings uh, late in 2015. So with that little kind of background about DOE and where I came from in this, all I can say is it was a great time to be leading DOE uh, when the president has two of his highest priorities kind of aligned with our, with, our, with our programs. But now today, we'll focus clearly on the climate and clean energy transformation that must be at the heart uh, of any, uh, of any uh, of successful approach to, uh, to climate change. And today, uh, it was alluded to a bit already, uh, is an opportune um, and or <laughs> uh, equally appropriate inopportune uh, time to discuss these issues. Uh, as mentioned, uh, the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC uh, issued a report a few days ago uh, in, uh, in, in Asia on the differential impact of one and a half and two degree se- uh, centigrade global average temperature rise. This came out of the Paris Agreement. We'll talk about it a little bit more in which uh, the Paris Agreement reinforced the international consensus that we really have to work to keep uh, global warming uh, at no more than two degrees centigrade, but with a goal, perhaps aspirational, uh, to, uh, to come, uh, come out of this below two degrees, preferably at, at one and a half degrees. So the IPCC, uh, collection of uh, international scientists, set out to try to look at what would be uh, the differences between one and a half and two degrees, and to try to try to try to sharpen those up. We should remember that today we are already roughly one degree centigrade uh, warmer than than pre-industrial times. So we're well on our way uh, to uh, to those uh, two uh, uh, milestones. Uh, which we would love to avoid, but uh, we will see that uh, uh, the one and a half degrees certainly would be uh, very, very, frankly, very hard to see how we're going to how we're going to manage that. But we'll we'll come back and, and discuss that. Uh, the uh, uh, and, and again, this is enshrined, as I said, in the uh, in the Paris Agreement. Now, to give a reference frame, uh, you know, and these numbers are. I'm rounding off, but you know, in, if we continue kind of business as usual, we're probably talking about a four-degree centigrade increase uh, in this uh, in this century. Uh, if we execute, if the world executes Paris, again in round numbers, maybe we're talking three degrees, um, and that means that Paris. We should not disparage it. I mean, Paris was an important first step, and I emphasize the first step, because that means that in Paris most countries adopted goals that one way or another translate to roughly 25 to 30 percent reductions in in carbon emissions uh, by by 2030. And so obviously what the numbers I just stated earlier mean uh, is that, okay, if not before 2030, certainly after 2030, we have a lot more work to do uh, and we have to accelerate the, uh, the um, uh, mitigation of greenhouse gas emissions to have any chance to come out in what is viewed as a uh, at least reasonable area. You all know, of course, and we'll come back to this, that already where we are today, you know, it's undeniable well, apparently not, that's, that's demonstrably <laughs> untrue. Uh, it should be undeniable that we are uh, already seeing uh, significant impacts. Actually, if I could have just the, uh, the, the slide come up, I'm just going to show if, if they can come up two slides. Yeah, okay, so this is a, a model of Shanghai uh, uh, just doing nothing but looking at the sea level rise from two degrees, I'm not doing half degrees here. Uh, uh, from a two-degree, uh, two-degree rise uh, in in temperature, uh, and then this is the four-degree rise, which is the business-as-usual kind of kind of uh, trajectory. Now, this is Shanghai, and obviously that's not it's, yeah. It's not Venice. It's Shanghai, uh, and um, And obviously that would be pretty catastrophic. But of course, we also have to remember that Shanghai, they have money and they would take various steps, expensive steps to avoid this kind of outcome. But the thing we have to remember is that a lot of other places in the world that don't quite have such nice skyscrapers that cannot afford uh, the kinds of adaptation uh, that would be required and we could go on a long, Uh, role on that in terms of dislocations, it would cause security challenges. But today, we'll just really stay focused on the the clean energy solutions uh, to, uh, to this kind of outcome. Now, in the IPCC report, a very important statement was that to be on the track of the one and a half degree world would require something like a 45, maybe 50% reduction in CO2 emissions by 2030, not the goals that were set forth by any country in uh, in Paris, let alone implementing those goals, I mean, actually realizing the goals, uh, and essentially 100% elimination of greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Uh, I'll, later on, I'll, I'll come back and interpret that a little bit more, but but that's the scale of what is being talked about to reach the one and a half degree centigrade uh, increase. Personally, I think the, <clears throat> obviously I very much hope that that <laughs> can be done, but I think in reality, uh, I, I think two degrees is gonna be tough, but maybe we can get, uh, get, get, get there. Uh, and, uh, 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 but what's important is that we work really hard to stay as low as we can in that, in that temperature increase to mitigate uh, the dr- dramatic, dramatic effects. So clearly, if we are to accomplish one and a half or two degrees, we have to go a lot faster uh, in getting carbon, uh, carbon out, of the, out of the system. Now, the second opportune or inopportune uh, fact of this week, uh, that, inf- that, that colors this discussion is Hurricane Michael, uh, hitting, hitting, hitting Florida uh, with category four force, uh, and then other, other states. We should emphasize that, without getting into detail, too much uh, controversy in the science, it's sort of a no-brainer. Higher sea level, warmer water, warmer air carrying more water is a great amplifier of the effects of something like a hurricane of this type. And it's the amplification of effects that I, that I will emphasize. Of course, we saw it, we, we see other, in, uh, other effects that have amplified the impact. For example, in the Houston hurricane, uh, uh, something that is quasi-expected, I would say, in, in the science is things like the hurricanes getting stationary for a while and just dumping water uh, for a long, long time. Uh, But again, the warmer world, the higher sea level and warmer seas clearly one where we see amplification of these effects. The estimates would be that a change in the surface water temperature of about a half degree, uh, a half degree centigrade uh, is probably a 10 to 15% uh, hurricane uh, destruction uh, uh, potential amplifier, and so that's I think what we have been seeing, uh, unfortunately, uh, in these last uh, in these last years. I might say that I'm on the uh, the board of um, uh, since earlier this year of Southern Company, big utility in the southeast, uh, and uh, the the company announced in April that it's already reduced. CO2 emissions by 36%, uh, working hard in this way. But of course, uh, this is about the overall warming of the atmosphere. And uh, one, of our, uh, one of Southern's subsidiaries, Gulf Power, is right in the track of this hurricane. So I'm afraid that we will be learning uh, very, very, in a very detailed way uh, about the, the impact here. Now, I mentioned earlier the word adaptation in the context of that uh, Shanghai uh, picture. I would just note again, so staying with Florida, where we have the the hurricane right now, uh, another utility, uh, Florida Power and Light, uh, that one utility, which does not serve all of Florida by any means, that utility has spent $4 billion in uh, hardening assets like poles, uh, preventing, or uh, hoping to prevent flooding of substations, uh, putting in a little, uh, smart technology uh, to help, especially in recovery, knowing where outages are and the like. If one company has to spend $4 billion, and we will see if that is anywhere near adequate in this, in this hurricane, you can imagine how you scale that up and, and talk about what, what the cost will be if we do not mitigate uh, the uh, global warming and climate, climate change by grabbing hold of our, of our energy system uh, and uh, making it more clean. All right, so progress. And let's focus on the United States and, and acknowledge first that we have made some significant progress. Uh, between 2005, which is an often stated reference year, and 2016, we have had a 14% reduction in carbon emissions roughly from six to five, a bit more than five uh, billion tons of CO2 uh, per year uh, uh, with about 75 to 80% of that reduction coming from the electricity sector. In terms of carbon intensity, which means carbon emissions per unit of economic activity, GDP, there's been about a 25% reduction in that time. In other words, we have lowered CO2, but we've increased the GDP by even more, which, of course, belies the idea, uh, often stated, that addressing carbon uh, somehow kills, kills the economy. The demand side is, is critical, managing demand. So, for example, in this time period of significant GDP growth uh, over more than a decade, um, things like electricity use were basically flat, for example, Uh, as so the, so the, again, the amount of uh, energy or electricity used per unit of of economic activity uh, has dropped, uh, dropped substantially. And that's something we still need to do to give you an idea as to how so called demand side or energy efficiency uh, activities can have a big impact uh, in, in the department of energy is responsible for issuing efficiency standards for Appliances uh, and, um, uh, and, and various equipment, electric motors and the like. We accelerated the pace of putting out these efficiency standards, put out over 50 of them. You might not think that standby power of microwave ovens is a big deal, uh, but when you start adding them all up, the projection is that the standards issued in the Department of Energy during the Obama administration will cumulatively by 2030 result in an avoidance of three billion tons of CO2 and consumer electric bill savings of over half a trillion dollars. So this stuff really adds up. Uh, It's, a lot of it is not, you know, headline stuff individually, Uh, but, but when you add them up and you keep pushing on this front of of energy efficiency, there are enormous gains uh, to be be had. But clearly we also need to accelerate in terms of clean energy uh, generation uh, of of electricity or other forms of of energy if we are to come anywhere close to the IPCC uh, targets. So the place to start, and I already said that our success over a decade has largely been in the electricity sector, and the electricity decarbonization is in in fact uh, the place to start. Uh, uh, And in the last decade, we have seen uh, tremendous drops uh, in costs. We have some colleagues here from the National Renewable Laboratory, and they've played a role, uh, as have other other laboratories, uh, in things like solar costs, dropping by about 70% since 2005. Uh, onshore wind, 60%. Batteries, I'll say 60%, George may argue. Um, uh, lots and lots of these cost reductions have been very, very critical. That plus state policies is what has led to tremendous growth uh, in, uh, in renewables deployment. Still not, not huge, uh, but approaching 10% uh, of, our, of our kilowatt hours from, uh, from renewables. But a big part of it has also been the switch from coal to natural gas, largely because of market dynamics. That is natural gas, the fracking revolution, and fracking is to many a bad word, um, but the fracking revolution has been uh, responsible for a majority of our decreased carbon emissions because it has displaced coal. Coal has gone in the United States from roughly 50% to now roughly 30% in the electricity mix with no indication of of, of an end to the closure of of coal plants to be replaced by a combination of natural gas and, uh, and renewables. And I might add that that natural gas share of electricity production, now it is the biggest source of of electricity, it passed coal a couple of years ago, uh, at the same time supplying a tremendous amount of of heating, for example, for buildings and a tremendous amount of industrial, industrial energy. So I think one has to recognize that while there are some environmental challenges in the footprint of natural gas production to be addressed, it has been an enormous environmental and uh, overall a cli- well, climate for sure, climate and, uh, and economic uh, boom. So one question is, will this continue? Of course, we know that in June of 2017, President Trump announced the beginning of the process to leave the Paris Agreement. I might add that uh, we are roughly, at the, thousand, the, the 1,000th anniversary of King Canute, who uh, waved, who ordered the waves uh, off, off, off the beach. Um, what is not, sometimes is sometimes not known, is King Canute did that as a humble person to demonstrate to his court that he could not control nature. Such humility seems to have been absent (laughs) more recently. uh, Perhaps someone really thought he could roll back the waves. Uh, but, um, But the good news is within days of that announcement, mayors across the country and many, many governors and well over a thousand business leaders said, thank you, we're carrying on. Uh, the, we are going to a low-carbon economy. There will be issues. There will be bumps in the road uh, in terms of, of pace and, and scale. But uh, I believe it is absolutely clear that we are going to a low-carbon energy economy uh, because the mayors and the governors and the business leaders, the latter in particular, who have to make you know, capital decisions, business model decisions, decadal timescales, not, uh, not a few-year uh, uh, timescales. We saw that here in California. Uh, once again, California is always uh, a leader. Uh, I think Massachusetts and New York are as well. Uh, <clears throat> it would be, it would be churlish to mention that Massachusetts comes out number one in energy efficiency uh, and has for many years, uh, so I won't. Uh, but. Um, uh, but, uh, for example, um, just a few weeks ago uh, in California, uh, when Governor Brown, uh, Governor Brown hosted the Climate Summit uh, and, and uh, just a few days before that signed into law uh, SB100, uh, that was the, uh, the legislation in California that increased the renewable portfolio standard in 2030 from 50 to 60%. Uh, Little detail you're probably going to hit 50% in 2021 anyway, Uh, so let's jack it up. That's a good idea Uh, But maybe even more significantly with California, obviously a giant economy We all know fifth largest economy in the world if it were uh, independent Uh, and Noting and that this economy saying that in 2045 The the renewable portfolio standard will be a clean energy standard, meaning that it will not be technology specific, which I highly endorse, just get the job done, no carbon emissions. Now, uh, I'm sorry, out of the electricity sector, we're still talking electricity. The, um, that's a big, that's a big statement. Now, I do think this has to be interpreted uh, carefully, uh, specifically, uh, and uh, uh, Andy Kosner uh, from the Emerson Collective and I wrote a, an op-ed on this before the legislation uh, was signed, uh, was passed, excuse me, uh, that uh, this should not be interpreted that every single plant must be zero emissions as opposed to the system being net zero emissions allowing for some negative carbon technologies, some offsets and, and the like. But, but this is a, that's a, small argument in, in the bigger picture right now of a state like California committing to zero emissions uh, electricity. Now, uh, I, I made that other, other interpretation because I do think that uh, there will be issues, certainly if one has only variable renewables, wind and solar, uh, and batteries with reason, fairly short-term storage, we will need other, other ways of meeting long-term storage needs. And I would just say that uh, natural gas, uh, I believe is still going to be a part of the system, uh, predominantly renewables, but with some natural gas uh, in there. And I'll come back to how that can still be part of a uh, a net zero uh, system. Uh, I mentioned coal to natural gas as having been absolutely critical to our national progress uh, on lowering, lowering CO2, but I do want to emphasize, and this becomes part of that net zero discussion, that sometime down the road, maybe it's 20 years uh, from now, uh, when coal to natural gas switching is no longer part of the picture, uh, natural gas will itself be too carbon intensive uh, for reaching deep decarbonization, uh, unless uh, there are other steps taken. Uh, and that's why we, we say that natural gas is, is, a, is certainly a bridge to that low carbon future, uh, but probably will have some role uh, in that deeply decarbonized future as well. Now, staying with electricity, in my view, uh, and it may not be for California, but the point is that, that very low carbon solutions I believe will look very different in different parts of our country, and will look very different in different countries in the world. Which is why at the Department of Energy, we always emphasized a so-called all of the above strategy, meaning advance the technologies for every and any fuel that can be part of, of a low carbon, low carbon future. I personally believe, and I believe this will be true in California as well, that Solar and wind are, are relatively low energy density, r- relatively few megawatts per square, whatever, meter or per acre or, or whatever. And I think that uh, certainly higher energy density sources uh, will, be, uh, w- will be needed. Uh, and that's where in different parts of the country and the world, I think nuclear technologies will also play a role in a deeply decarbonized uh, future. In particular, uh, I think in, with fission, nuclear fission, which is what of course we have today, uh, uh, I believe that the technology direction of interest is much smaller, passively safe plants, so-called small modular reactors, which have very nice technology features, but also have very much preferable financing features compared to these large thousand megawatt plus plants. Uh, I mentioned I'm on the board of Southern Company, which is also building the only two nuclear power plants in the country right now. And everyone knows their cost has gone as, has uh, gone almost a factor of two beyond what was expected. So I believe the small modular reactors which can be built on a manufacturing line will be the future of that technology. But I also wanna note that nuclear fusion is getting, believe it or not, is getting a new look. Uh, And um, there is in the nuclear business today, fission and fusion, the most incredible burst of innovation and entrepreneurial activity that that field has ever seen, frankly, because they didn't see that much before. Uh, (laughs) But now there's, there's roughly 50 companies Uh, uh, private companies typically uh, working on various technologies. One of them on on Fusion, uh, um, just down the road here, a UCAL Irvine spin-out, where I was spending time this morning. It used to be called Tri-Alpha Energy, now it's called TAE. The CEO would be horrified if I invited you all to go go visit it, Uh, but uh, it it really is interesting. Uh, New ideas, new technology, A fusion technology that doesn't create even any neutrons uh, for example uh, which has enormous implications for providing no no radioactivity uh, etc so look we'll see they also work with Google on artificial intelligence for running the experiments they've also had a technology spin-out called TAE life sciences for using the technology for for cancer therapy uh, so it's a new world of entrepreneurial activity uh, in, this, in, this, in this arena. And I might mention another spin out from MIT, uh, uh, it's called Commonwealth Systems, is now another approach to fusion, small compact, which will rely upon being able to build a whole new generation of very high field strength magnets. So anyway, so I think the, we have a lot of progress uh, has been made but I do think we still need to keep innovating uh, with uh, these other kinds of, of, of technologies. They all, however, are gonna require some innovative policy in my view because all of these technologies eventually run in to the billion dollar challenge of commercial demonstration and that's where we're going to need public-private partnerships to, 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 advance, to advance this. All right, let me, um, talk about, um, before moving on to other sectors besides electricity, let me talk a little bit about another aspect of the meeting, of the meeting in, in, uh, in Paris. We've already mentioned the Paris Agreement, which by definition was the last day of the Paris meeting, COP 21 meeting, but on the first day of the Paris meeting, another important event occurred, not as broadly recognized. And that was when national leaders, including President Obama, President Xi of China, and 18 others, announced something called Mission Innovation with a capital M and a capital I. And what this was, was a set of goals that each would pursue to double R&D investments in clean energy over a five-year period. So the idea was we need to accelerate the technology transformation. Innovation is at the heart of climate solutions. And so we these 20 countries at that time made that commitment for opening up the innovation pipeline. Now, Unfortunately, the current administration uh, got the factor of two confused in terms of numerator and denominator (laughs) uh, in their proposal to Congress. But the good news is Congress didn't listen. And Congress uh, for the uh, fiscal year 2018 budget actually increased the clean energy budgets by over 10%, not quite 20, but I'll take it. Uh, And this year as well for 2019, uh, also an increase, not quite as large given the budget constraints. But the good news is that when all is said and done, Congress recognizes the importance of these clean energy investments. The climate word is not often used, but the innovation word is very popular. Uh, and uh, and so I think this has really really showed leadership, frankly, in a bipartisan way uh, from uh, from uh, from the Congress. And while you know countries may not meet the factor of two and five years, but the trends are really uh, very very positive in many ways. And we are seeing activities together. For example, um, when Mission Innovation was established, Mexico, one of the twenty countries, asked to take the lead in organizing activities on advanced materials for energy technologies. They held that workshop. Uh, uh, The United States and Canada helped with them, a different kind of NAFTA, or whatever it's called now. Uh, uh, And that happened, and in fact, uh, uh, the the issue of using high-throughput experimental methods and very, very large-scale computation and machine learning Uh, is in fact uh, moving forward as part of this international uh, collaboration. So there there are some good signs. But also in Paris, after the 20 leaders made their point, Bill Gates got up on the stage, representing uh, deep-pocketed investors uh, from uh, several continents, committing not to be part of the government activity, but in parallel, ramp up the amount of funds available for breakthrough technologies. And they have, in fact, established uh, the Breakthrough uh, Energy Fund and have made a bunch of investments. So this kind of public-private intersection, I think, is a key to be able to accelerate the development and the deployment uh, of these technologies. Now, that's all great, but let me point out, so far, in talking about our progress and our technologies, we've talked about electricity. Electricity is, in fact, the lead horse for decarbonization. However, it's less in the United States, it is less than 30% of our emissions. We cannot deeply decarbonize only by addressing the electricity sector. In my view, we can't deeply decarbonize, even if we electrify as much of the remaining sectors as we can sensibly. So we've got to look at our biggest emitting sector now of the United States is transportation, slightly more than electricity. Industry is a large emitting sector and Heating of buildings, uh, commercial and residential buildings, is also a significant uh, part of the emission profile. So we have to address all of these sectors, and frankly, I would say, roughly speaking, they are all harder to decarbonize than electricity. So I think that frankly, I mean, we made some progress like uh, 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 automobile efficiency standards have helped a little bit, but the needle hasn't moved a whole lot. Um, uh, in the United States, uh, we use more energy for heating than cooling. Uh, warmer weather, you know, less heating, a bit more cooling. It has not led to a major change there. Although we should, I'll make as an aside, I should remind you that cooling in the world is going to be an enormous energy load going forward uh, in the more tropical uh, uh, areas. Uh, And in fact, uh, fortunately, in 2015, we also reached an agreement in Kigali to modify the Montreal Protocol to phase out hydrofluorocarbons uh, from uh, air conditioners um, over, unfortunately, a rather extended period, Uh, but that alone if successful, and there's still some technology that needs to be, to be developed successful, that alone could account for about a half a degree centigrade warming uh, by, uh, by, by 2100. Anyway, the point is we really need to look at all of these other sectors, transportation, industry, buildings, Buildings don't sound necessarily so difficult, except for the fact that they last an awfully long time. Uh, and uh, new buildings, no problem. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, the old, old buildings start. So we, we are going to need, in my view, to dramatically reshape the R&D portfolio, preferably by expanding it, as we said earlier, uh, with everything like advanced batteries, potentially a hydrogen economy, uh, Things like renewable gas, it may not be the most expansive resource, but renewable gas, biogas, large-scale carbon management, and low-carbon liquid fuels. These are examples of the kinds of technologies where uh, we have not really, in my view, invested sufficient effort. Uh, A lot of these have very fundamental science problems yet, yet to be addressed. Let me just, make a few comments on two of them, the hydrogen economy uh, and, oops, because I'm getting late, uh, the hydrogen economy and large-scale carbon management. So one of the big challenges, for example, is not just low carbon electricity, but low carbon heat. For example, in industry where high temperature heat heat is required, uh, this may, uh, so hydrogen could be uh, a complement to electricity in satisfying a whole bunch of needs in industry uh, and in, uh, and in uh, uh, transportation. Um, it could, in a certain sense, be uh, in many ways the, repl- the, the replacement for natural gas if we can make an adequate supply uh, at very, very low, uh, with very, very low carbon emissions. Today, hydrogen use is growing, mainly in our, in our refineries, and it is produced by, uh, mix, by putting natural gas with steam uh, uh, to make the hydrogen, but it, it releases uh, carbon dioxide. Uh, however, one approach can be to start capturing that carbon dioxide. Uh, the, uh, and one plant in Texas, uh, DUE gave some money for, it's been operating now for several years, it does, it does just that. It converts gas to hydrogen for a refinery, captures the CO2, sends it to a old oil well in Texas and produces additional oil while the CO2 is kept underground. So that's the kind of solution that, that can help. Of course, uh, and be almost carbon free. Now, of course, the dream is to lower the costs for electrolysis uh, to convert water to hydrogen and oxygen uh, without any carbon carbon at all. To do this, uh, we will need capital cost reductions and a lot of cheap carbon-free electricity uh, to to run this. But these are possibilities which could really begin to address large parts of the non-electricity sector. Uh, Similarly, for transport, uh, uh, fuel cell uh, vehicles, are coming along and, and, and I think especially uh, for, um, for uh, heavier vehicles um, could really uh, have, a, have a major role. Uh, we are of course seeing a lot of progress on battery vehicles uh, and indeed I think that within a decade we will have reached the tipping point where the cost of ownership of a, a 300 mile range electric vehicle will be completely competitive with, with an internal combustion engine. Let me just uh, skip to uh, large scale carbon management, which I also believe is essential. What I mean by that is that uh, I think we need to either capture a lot of the carbon emitted from our various facilities or from the air. We need to be able hopefully to utilize a lot of that carbon dioxide. I mentioned enhanced oil recovery but also in large commodities, like fuels, maybe cement and the like. And or sequester the CO2 underground, either geologically or biologically uh, through land use or engineered engineered plants. So um, uh, given the time, I'm just going to say that, uh, that we have a, we have some low hanging fruit right now if we would just incentivize uh, uh, the capture of CO2 and that is industrial plants in which the, which the costs are already uh, fairly, fairly low. And Congress, again, Congress recognized this in, in passing some new tax credits this year. We will need some uh, significant uh, new science uh, to be able to make at scale commodity products using CO2 the holy grail uh, certainly being to convert CO2 plus water and sunlight uh, to uh, to a fuel. Uh, and there are people here in the audience who have worked on this uh, uh, area. Uh, and as I said, geological sequestration uh, is, a, is, a, is, is attractive and we know it can be done at scale. But we should not underestimate uh, the issues of public acceptance, for example. So, If we said we wanted to capture and put underground 10 billion tons of carbon per year somewhere down the road, that would require capturing the carbon from about 3,000 coal plants. And each of those coal plants would create over a 50-year lifetime a CO2 reservoir of billions of barrels. This is not for the faint of heart. Uh, and so you know so scientifically technically we know a lot about what we need to do but again there are there are issues and biologically we could have engineered solutions uh, such as uh, modifying plants to have much much deeper root systems for example and fix a lot more co2 uh, underground so lots of lots of possibilities uh, and I think many of these possibilities again will come together in different ways uh, in different places. So finally, let me just say a word about policy because I believe the innovation agenda is not just technology, I think technology is key and the cost reduction that comes with technology advances, but we'll also need business model and policy innovation. On policy innovation, Everybody knows the simplest way, in principle, is to price carbon emissions. That's what you don't want. You put a price on it. But the price has to be at least of the scale of what is called the social cost of carbon. Specifically, uh, one proposal that I think is one of the more interesting ones out there is by a set of Republicans. Uh, George Schultz, Jim Baker, Hank Paulson, um, and others. And what they have said is, okay, let's start with a carbon price of $40 to $50 a ton. That gets attention. Uh, it's not the usual $10 or $15, uh, which frankly does not change much in terms of technology choice. So $40 to $50, you start. Then they argue, you collect that you know 40 to 50 dollars times five billion tons is some serious money. They say, the last thing we want is to have the political politicals get their hands on this money. So just divide it up in equal amounts as a dividend to everybody. Send it back. That is a progressive tax. A, it's, car, it's revenue neutral, and it's progressive. The models suggest the lower 70% of the income distribution will come out ahead. But then, and that, that appeals to one side of the political spectrum. Uh, then we have the other side, which is, and then you eliminate all other energy subsidies and some class of energy regulations. That appeals to a different part of the political spectrum. And that's, that's what it takes. I think a balanced, a balanced approach, something like this, with one other feature which I don't know how to do. And that is to put a carbon charge on imports from countries that are not having a similar carbon policy to avoid leakage of industry uh, out of the country. Maybe blockchain is the answer. Follow the entire supply chain uh, and, uh, and label the carbon. But those, that's the kind of thinking that I think we need. Uh, and with that, If we had something like that, the technology innovation would just take another big jump and all kinds of creative ideas would come out for new technologies and new services to supply uh, to people and uh, meet our carbon goals. So just in summary, I'll just say some of the points I I hope you come away with are uh, that obviously we need to be very aggressive on mitigation, but we also need uh, to invest in, in adaptation I believe natural gas will be critical in the transition to very low carbon and likely a long-term contributor, maybe with carbon capture and sequestration. Uh, uh, we, need, we, need, we absolutely need an ambitious innovation agenda. It's not only a question of deploying what we have today. That won't get us to the deep decarbonization. Fourth, we need much more focus on these sectors that are hard to decarbonize. Don't take our eye off the ball on electricity, but we gotta move and start making real progress in those other sectors like industry uh, and and transportation. We will need, I believe, large-scale carbon management of the type I needed, Uh, I I, I mentioned, uh, and we will need much stronger national carbon policies such as the tax and dividend uh, to to bring all of this together. Thank you for your attention. I'm sorry I went on so so long. <laughs>